0: Looking at it for a couple of weeks now, will be for some weeks to come. We've got to chapter 5 this morning. Let me just read a verse or two to remind you of a theme, if you hadn't got it into your minds very firmly already. We see in verse 9, the angels sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Let's bow in prayer, shall we, for a moment? Lord God, our Heavenly Father, as uh, we come to this time when we try to understand your word... We pray that you would meet every single one of us where we are. Lord, if this is the first time we have read this passage, I pray that you would give us insight and excitement, Lord, just as John was so clearly filled with that excitement. If this is the hundredth or the thousandth time, Lord, Nevertheless, we pray that you would minister to us and help us to see new things from your word and therefore, Lord, to be brought closer to you, the living one, the first and last, who rules over all for all time. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Fascinates me, you know, how... um, Deeply, human beings need hope. We need a sense that we are on the path to something better. With that hope, we can endure the most terrible situations. But without such a hope, actually even quite minor problems sometimes can seem uh, overwhelming. The the bullied teenager who uh, attempts suicide says that uh, they did it because I couldn't see how it was going to get any better. Or the man who has a midlife crisis, because he uh, wakes up one morning and suddenly realizes that all his naive, youthful ambitions are slipping away from him and he doesn't really have any hope like he used to have. Or the elderly person who slips into uh, depression comes depressed because they feel that they've got nothing left to look forward to. If you listen to people having uh, crises in their lives, you will find again and again that it's because they have lost some hope that once was so precious to them. Hope for human beings is as, as vital to our souls as food and drink are to our bodies. And actually, the precise nature of our hope shapes our our lives, both individually and corporately. I mean, scholars, many scholars today, for instance, believe that the Industrial Revolution and the the rise of capitalism itself uh, uh, has been built on the underlying national and international confidence in progress, For the last 200 years, people have been giving their lives, uh, sacrificially, investing themselves in a great confidence, a great faith that mankind is marching towards a better world. And every ounce of energy that they can put into that is uh, energy well spent. Actually, today, many people are rather disillusioned with that hope. The rise of uh, the environmental movement is partly actually due to the perceived naivety of the previous view that said uh, technology uh, and uh, increase in knowledge will inevitably lead us on to a better world. Many people today, especially amongst the younger generation, feel that our best hope doesn't lie in that, but it lies actually being being in tune with the natural world. The, uh, the conflict over GM foods is actually... Uh, Uh, at its deepest level, the playing out of those two fundamental hopes. Will will, um, technological advance save millions of lives and feed uh, millions of people? Or in fact, does our best hope lie in being sensitive to the way that nature itself works? What you believe about that will uh, determine what you think about GM foods, by and large. And the fact that it arouses such intensity of emotion lies in the fact that it's very fundamental to people's sense of hope for the future, which of those things they believe. Our hopes, then, and our fears drive us. They shape us. They make us, to a large extent, who we are. So it's important to have the right hope, isn't it? It's important to put your trust in something that uh, really will meet uh, our needs. The Bible and uh, the book of Revelation especially says to us very, very clearly what the Christian hope is doesn't lie in some technological nirvana or in a, in a, in a mythical uh, uh, future age where we are perfectly in harmony with nature. doesn't lie with either of those things. The Bible says actually that, that evil in the world, the bad things in the world, are, are built into the very warp and woof of our present existence. But it also says that God himself will one day overthrow all that evil and he will do it by actually recreating absolutely everything that we now see a second time, but this time he will do it without any pain, without any tears, without death or decay. That uh, new age is going to be called the new heaven and the new earth. And the Bible says quite clearly, meantime, all other hopes are at best only partial and at worst, terrible delusions. We've got to understand that context as we move to try to understand Revelation chapter 5. Last week, if you, if you were here, you remember we got a glimpse of God's throne room. And there in heaven were all the, the, the angels anticipating God's intention for his whole creation. Four angelic living creatures were worshipping God as a sign that the whole world was actually made to praise him. If only it wasn't troubled by uh, uh, evil right now. But it will do one day. There were 24 elders bowing down to, uh, to God and praising him as a sign that God's people supremely were made to praise him. And they will do so. But how then is that hope going to become a reality? That's the question for us this week. You know, turn away from those angels in the heavenly throne room for a moment. Look at this world, look at this world with its earthquakes, with its famines and wars, not to mention the million uh, private griefs that we all live with. And that hope seems pretty forlorn, doesn't it? Well, the first uh, five verses of Revelation chapter 5 begin to unfold God's answer to that. The first thing that we need to learn from this chapter is, um, you could summarize it, our hope depends on a lion. See why in just a minute. John is shown a scroll in the right hand of God. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven Seals. Now, what does that scroll represent? What, why, does it, why does it have writing on both sides? Why is it sealed so tightly with these, these seven seals? Now, the, pros- the, the proposals are, are numerous, actually. One suggestion has it that it's the, the Old Testament that John uh, sees held in God's hands. Uh, sealed because the promises of the Old Testament are not yet fulfilled. Another suggestion uh, says that it's actually much similar to a a Roman last will and testament. Such documents were uh, traditionally actually sealed with seven seals. The description of the scroll actually is very like a scroll that was uh, uh, shown to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 2. And there we see that that scroll contained words of lament and mourning and woe. Actually, it was also uh, uh, common in so-called apocalyptic literature, which uh, uh, the book of Revelation is, that it was common that the words of the prophecy revealed in this dramatic way were to be written down on a scroll and then sealed up until the moment when the prophecy was about to come true. John has a habit when he uh, describes his images in the the book to allude to more than one thing. Almost certainly, I think, in fact, the scroll is meant to represent all of those things. So all of those things have one one thing in common. They uh, encapsulate God's great purposes for his world. And at the moment, God's purposes can't be fulfilled. The Old Testament has great visions of what God will one day do for this world. And yet all those visions haven't all come true. A last will and testament is the a, is a sort of final stated purpose of a person's life. And God's final stated purpose has not yet been unsealed. So I think we can uh, can see this scroll as uh, encapsulating all of God's final purposes for his creation. And at the moment, it is very securely sealed. That's why John uh, weeps so uncontrollably, when he sees that this seal is, uh, this scroll is sealed, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it, he says. Because, you see, he's facing the prospect that the world may be a place with no hope. You know, this century has seen a lot of such weeping as some of the naive confidences of previous centuries have seemed to to melt away. Suddenly the world has seemed, in fact, not to have the great purpose that people of the past thought it had, but in fact to be a a horrible and purposeless place. 20 years and more ago, the, the intelligentsia were wrestling with this, Perceived meaninglessness of the world. But now it's the common currency of people on the street very often. People who work with teenagers say that there's an increasing amount of apathy amongst them. Far more apathy than there was in generations gone by. There are very few idealists today. Perhaps a few environmentalists who have some larger ideal, but not many. Most people bury themselves in the pleasures of the the moment. They try not to think too much about it. Because like John, they instinctively know that they would weep and weep if they really honestly looked at themselves and said, what hope am I really living for? The scroll is sealed and no one can open it. But you see, John is told that he need not weep. He's told that the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. Now, John knew what that referred to. He'd, he'd read his Old Testament. He knew that way back in the first book of the, the Bible, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob had predicted that one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah, would be, a, would be strong and victorious against all of God's enemies, like a mighty lion, said Jacob. He's also described, isn't he, in in verse 5, as the root of David. King David was from the tribe of Judah, actually. And uh, he was lion-like in the way that he overcame many of God's enemies, but not all. Then after David's day, Isaiah, in chapter 11 of his prophecy, predicts that, uh, in fact, our ultimate hope still rests with that line, with one of David's descendants. He says uh, uh, this descendant will be like a shoot uh, 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 growing up from a root. And in Isaiah chapter 11, this uh, great future person is described as a perfect Judge, who sees all things, who only needs to speak to exercise his perfect judgments, who will bring about an era of, of justice and peace, which is so complete, says Isaiah, that even carnivorous animals will no longer hunt and kill their prey. That poisonous snakes will no longer bite people. He's grasping after an era of justice and peace which, which confounds our imaginations, even. This uh, root of David will do that. This is a hope, then, which goes beyond anything that we can see in this world. We will not realize this hope through technology. We will not realize this hope through living in harmony with the environment. We will not realize this hope through anything that we ourselves can do. This hope requires resurrection. This hope requires recreation. This hope requires a new heaven and a new earth that God insists will one day be brought to being. And this Lion of Judah, this Root of David, has the authority to realize this hope. He alone can break the seals on that scroll. Of course, he's Jesus, isn't he? Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. Jesus was a a son of David. We saw in chapter 1 just a, a couple of weeks ago, that he reigns in all his mighty splendor amongst the churches right now and says this great voice, our hope depends on this lion, this mighty victorious chief, Jesus, to bring about all the hopes that the Bible promises us. But you see, then comes the shock Then comes the twist in this story, which is so vital. When John turns to look at this lion, look what he sees. Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now imagine the shock of that. He turns to see a lion and he sees a lamb. How can a lion be a lamb? And a slain lamb at that, his throat has been fatally cut open and yet this lamb lives, says John. And he has no less authority as a lamb. He stands in the center of the throne says John, a place where only God is found up to now. He is all-powerful, says John. He has seven horns. He is all-seeing, says John. He has seven eyes. John explains that he sees by means of of the Holy Spirit and he is utterly, utterly self-confident in the face of God Almighty, in the presence of God Almighty, he takes the scroll from God's hand. He is not given it by God and sort of with diffidence says, okay, I must accept it. He advances to God and takes the scroll from him because he in himself has the authority to do that. But why does he have to be a lamb then? If he is so great, if he is so powerful, if he is so wonderful, why does he have to be a lamb? Why doesn't John see a mighty carnivore with blood dripping from his chops, the blood of his enemies? Why actually does he see a helpless herbivore with his own blood dripping down his neck? It's vital that we understand this because this, this is absolutely central to God's intentions for his universe. It alerts us to the fact that God cannot overthrow evil simply by brute force. Evil is not ultimately, you see, something out there, something separable from us that he can destroy and leave us okay. Evil is something that that is woven into our present existence. Evil is something that we find as much within ourselves as we do out there. So that if God came as a, as a mighty, avenging warrior only, he may achieve justice, but we would not survive. I think it was T.S. Eliot who uh, wrote to the Times uh, in response to a long correspondence that had been going on on the subject of what was wrong with the world. And T. S. Eliot uh, said, Dear Sir, what is wrong with the world? I am. That is our great conundrum. Our visions and hopes for the future are, are undermined again and again, not by the world around us, but from within. If the lion were to come now, we would be his victims. But you see, built into the Old Testament was a solution. Old Testament Israelites had to sacrifice lambs amongst other animals in order to pay for their sins. The punishment that should have been theirs was placed on the the animals so that God didn't need to punish them. Of course that was a that was a a rather brutal regime, a terribly unfair regime. What did these innocent lambs have about them that meant they deserved to die for our sins? Where was where was the justice in that? It was really just a a horrible fiction, but it taught us a lesson. Taught us a lesson that is only uh, fully worked out in the New Testament. Now, a death has to occur if God's perfect justice is to be worked out. if we are to be forgiven, it must be a death of someone else. Of course, there is no way that any third party with justice could take that on themselves. Now, if we have sinned against God, ultimately, God himself has to take that sin on himself. And so there is a lamb. A lamb who has the same authority as God. A lamb who is also on the throne. A lamb who is God the Son who dies for our sins, who bears the penalty for our sins in himself so that finally God can be perfectly just and perfectly forgiving to his people. That's the reason why Jesus died on the cross, you see. It was the last and vital piece in the the great jigsaw of God's purpose for this world. It's like like the keystone at the uh, the top of the bridge which allows us to walk across the great gulf that there is between the way the world is now and the way God intends the world to be. Jesus died for our sins. To use the phraseology of of verse 9, he purchased men and women for God. And this is the only hope that any of us has. It's the only hope that stands the test of time. It's the only hope that stands the test of experience. Your hope will fall about your ears if it is not the hope that Jesus has bought my forgiveness and therefore when God finally eliminates all evil, he will not eliminate me. Have you accepted that? Have you abandoned the the false hopes that we cling to so assiduously and said, God, please forgive me. Please place my sins on Jesus' shoulders. Please give me hope. Hope that lasts for all eternity. We've not done that, you see. When uh, uh, we meet God face to face, we will meet a lion and not a lamb. Actually, uh, Revelation speaks of something even more terrible than that. It says, it warns us that we will face the wrath of the lamb. A wrath that comes from the unspeakable ingratitude of ignoring the death of the Son of God by which he freely offers us forgiveness. Jesus' death is deeply, deeply significant for us. It is significant for us personally, but actually it is the key that allows God's purposes for history to come to their fulfillment. It is the the key event that keeps the clock ticking towards the last great day. Because if Jesus had not died for our sins, God could not fulfill his great purposes. God can now populate the new heaven and the new earth with forgiven people and still maintain perfect justice because God in himself has paid for the sins of his people. As the uh, lamb then takes the scroll, as the lamb asserts that he alone can uh, uh, unseal that scroll and open it up, we see a chain of events which which builds and builds and builds until John's whole senses are overwhelmed in this chapter. It's like a mighty avalanche which perhaps began with just a little handful of snow rolling down the hill and yet which in the end is an awesome and thunderous event. Everything, says John, praises the Lamb. First of all, he says the living creatures, which are, remember, angels representing the animal kingdom, and the elders, which are angels again representing God's people, they bow down to the Lamb. Verse 8 When he had taken it, the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, which they were holding, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're singing a new song, he says. It's vital that we notice that. A new song in the Bible is always a song of victory. It's always a song which celebrates how God has has defeated his enemies, how he has overcome evil, how he has brought his great purposes for history a step closer. In chapter 4, last week, we saw that they sang a song about God's greatness in creation. But this new song completes the harmony. Now God's marred creation can be perfected. Because the lamb was slain, because he was punished for the people of God, no matter what their social or national background, they are from every tribe and nation. A people who (coughs) now can live under God's rule, they are called a kingdom. A people who know God and can mediate God's presence to his people, they are called priests. A people whose gospel of forgiveness... Will penetrate every part of this world and overcome all opposition which stands up against it. They will reign on the earth, say the angels. But that message on its own, that song on its own, cannot be confined to just 16 angels. Every angel's thunderous voice must praise the Lamb. Verse 11, I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Now, one angel's voice sounds like thunder. What could 10,000, times 10,000 angels sound like? I remember when the the, uh, Gulf War was on and they were doing blanket bombing over Iraq, how uh, people said that when they when they took the poor Iraqi soldiers out of their bunkers, they were completely and utterly shocked and traumatized because of the, 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 the enormity of the great pounding vibrations that have been going through the, the ground for, for hours upon hours of days upon days. Well, John was faced with such such an awe-inspiring experience. Not this time of destruction, but of praise. Thousands upon thousands of angels praising the Lamb. And more than that, says John, not even that great chorus of uh, praise is sufficient. No, he turns to the visible world, the world of creatures, the world which we now see, which can now be redeemed, the world which now groans but which now knows that that groaning will one day end. And this world, says John, from, that, from, from a perspective of heaven, has begun to praise God the Father and God the Son. Now, do you see that in verse 13? Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power. Forever and ever this is this is the, the climax of a great sympo- symphony with innumerable instruments uh, uh, sounding as loud as they are able. This is a noise to shake the stars this is a this is a great final chord which brings together all the counter melodies all the minor themes all the harmonies and disharmonies, which have been played down throughout the whole of history into one great final resolving chord. And then almost as if the Lamb himself has has drawn that chord to a close like the conductor. You see that the vision ends just with four voices again. and the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. For now, the fullness of the praise of God must remain with the angels. The seals have still to be opened, and when they are opened, as Ezekiel saw, there will be mourning as well as joy but the scroll is in the hand of the Lamb. History is moving towards its great and perfect climax. The day will come when God says, Behold, I make all things new. The day will come when an angel says, Now the dwelling of God is with man. The day will come when, to use the imagery of chapter 4 from last week, there is no longer any sea. No longer any separation between God and man. Which leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Are you living for that hope? I, I have no doubt that there are a few people here who have to confess in all honesty that they don't live for that hope. Let let me ask you: Everybody has a hope. We need a hope of some sort to keep going. What is your ultimate ultimate hope? Is is it perhaps uh, to have a a fulfilling sexual and emotional relationship? Is it uh, perhaps to have financial security? Is it to have a certain status in society? Is it to have good health? Just naming those hopes actually alerts us to how elusive and how partial and how temporary we are. How temporary those hopes are. It may be that your uh, uh, ultimate hope is that you will be remembered when you're gone. Many, many people uh, in their search for a sense of immortality feel that that is the greatest thing that could be said of them. I remember him. I remember her. Well, let me tell you frankly, you'll be forgotten. Or well, maybe the uh, occasional na- nostalgic thought may flit across people's minds for a few years some people's minds perhaps for a few for a generation it will be forgotten good number of people you know may come to our funeral but if you try to arrange a memorial service for for yourself or get someone else to do it a few years after your death who will come? No one gains immortality through people's memory. The only hope worth having is to be purchased for God by the Lamb. To be amongst the people of God who will praise God in his new creation for all eternity Now, you may be sitting here, the majority of people are sitting here thinking, well, that is my hope. I am part of that company. Let me give you a simple test to see whether that is really true. One simple test. I said at the beginning, didn't I, right at the beginning, that people's whole lives are shaped by their hope, whether they like it or not. Indeed, whole societies are shaped by the hope that that society shares. (laughs) What shapes you? What drives you? What makes you the person that you are? Christians are shaped by a delight in God's free forgiveness won by Jesus Christ on the cross and by nothing else. We're shaped by the need to conform and to belong to some sort of religious society we are not Christians. If we are shaped by a moral code only, we are not Christians. If we are shaped by a delight in prayer or a delight in the church family or even a delight in praise itself, those things on their own do not make us Christians. Christians are nourished by no other hope than that Jesus died for their sins. That hope alone will never disappoint. That hope alone can fill us with joy and satisfaction for all eternity. We are shaped by our hopes. Make sure you have the right Oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you were willing to send your Son, Jesus Christ, to die as a sacrificial lamb, to pay for our sins in himself. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to Be those who delight in the forgiveness that you have won. And more than that, Lord, who delight only in that. So that we will be those who can begin praising you now and can rejoice in that great future reality when all is praise. We ask it in Christ name.